All right, everybody, welcome to the Secrets of Story podcast. Here is our theme music. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And tonight we have another special guest, Jeff Betts. Say hi to everybody, Jeff Betts. Hi. So Jeff is my best friend since we were 13. He has a master's in film studies from the University of Texas at Austin. We like to discuss film. We like to discuss all kinds of wonderful things. He has lots of wonderful opinions about film. And he said, hey, I should come on your podcast. And we said, that would be great. Well, I said it. James has never met Jeff. They've just met for the first time, and it's going swimmingly. Matt did not allow us to speak because he (laughs) wanted us to have, like, this natural flow on this. But now it's going to just be awkward. We're just going to, like, stumble and kind of stare into each other's eyes and kind of go um and um because we we weren't able to get a proper report. That's correct. Yes. That's what I'm looking forward to. (laughs) What a puppet master you are. (laughs) I'm I'm creating conflict. I want you two to just be gobsmacked and awkward around each other. Try, what I stopped you from saying is you were asking how we met. Yeah, you two were or, union organizers. You you union organized bus drivers, right? Yeah, we did. Well, that's not true. We both worked for SEIU in Minneapolis. I was organizing bus drivers. Jeff, who were you organizing? Uh, healthcare workers, and I've been a sort of trade union organizer representative since 2001. Would I say that that I kind of say that's much more worthwhile work than dicking around with movies. Uh, <laughs> well, well, he, he wanted to eventually combine them. How did you eventually combine dicking around with movies and union organizing? Right, so I've been employed by the Writers Guild of America East since 2007. You've yes. been organizing TV and movie writers, and at first it was like, oh, you know, that's nice, they need a union, and then you guys have just been killing it. You guys have been upending all sorts of things. First of all, you organize all the internet news writers, and then now, of course, you're completely changing the face of Hollywood with your WGA agents campaign, which has just been amazing to watch. So actually, it's my history in working with unions and working with working people that I am a fan of the podcast, and I actually wanted to explore a topic over sort of the way that sort of a protagonist in a story in a film would pursue his or her self-interest. And is it is it driven towards entirely selfish goals or is it oftentimes driven towards sort of larger <laughs> larger sort of aims? I think the film Aaron Brockovich as compared to Norma Ray is very much that example. Norma Ray is about someone who's driven by self-interest to pursue, in this case, a union campaign, but winds up sort of being in service to her coworkers in, in a way that sort of changes her. Uh, in, in her goals and her values in her life, whereas Aaron Brockovich's center seems to be centered entirely on wanting other people to respect this person and wanting to achieve justice by virtue of sort of being perceived as an important person. And at the end of the film, actually virtually literally being paid $2 million yeah. as a result She's, of that. Albert so, is so. like, well, you did a good job doing community organizing. Yeah. And as a result of your community organizing, here's a check for $1 million. Yeah. And it's this big stand-up and cheer moment. And it's yeah. sort of the opposite of the stand-up and cheer, the yeah. literal stand-up and cheer moment at the end of Norma Ray, where she's standing up mm-hmm. on her textile machine yeah. and holding up the union sign. And it's like, <laughs> instead of like, instead of like, oh, I've, you know, I've learned that we can only succeed when we succeed together. It's like the exact opposite in Aaron Brockovich. It's like, one million dollars. But so let's go ahead and let's talk about how this sort of fits in. Obviously, in union organizing, which I used to do and which you still do, you know, one of the central tenets of union organizing is you can only motivate people around their self-interest. You're not going to go around and talk about social justice from door to door. You're not going to go around and talk about even economic justice to a certain extent from door to door. You're going to go and talk about, like, what do you need and how can you achieve it by working with your fellow man? So talked about what I've said on my blog and in my book. One thing I say is sort of a version of that, 
which is people only want what they want. Your characters should not be motivated selflessly. That is not what heroism is. A hero is not someone who is selflessly motivated. A hero is someone who is pursuing their own self-interest and their self-interest happens to coincide with the public interest. This is someone who the audience agrees that this person's self-interest is a heroic thing, is a good thing, but it is not someone who is completely abandoning self-interest because that is not believable. We don't believe it and we don't we don't really root for it. How you know, broadly do you mean that? Do you mean that for like all characters or just the hero? The all, char- all characters to a certain extent, certainly the villain. Uh, it's also true of, you know, generally I would say that the hero is the character who is pursuing their self-interest that is, and their self-interest coincides with the common good, and the villain is the character who is pursuing their self-interest and their self-interest does not coincide with the common good. So you wrote on your blog, people only want what they want and it doesn't make them bad people. Unless your character is an exceptionally caring parent or spouse, they shouldn't become selflessly concerned with the emotional state of another character unless they have have to act that way to get what they want yes and, and so when you announced that rule you did in the context of saying like people don't come into the room size of the situation and say do you know what your problem is it's i guess it's ex- true for that extremely specific and limited circumstance about people telling each other about their problems did you mean that rule only in that narrow circumstance about people telling each other their faults or did you mean that people generally don't do things that are outside their narrowly defined self-interest i think that everybody defines their self-interest differently And I think that some people define their self-interest in a more helpful way than other people define their self-interest. But I think that ultimately, people want what they want. I think ultimately, a well-written character is going to do what the character wants to do, what the character needs to do, what what helps the character, and is not going to be like, oh, I'm a good character, so I am someone who is just going to walk in the room and go like, hi, honey, what can I do for you? What's no, okay, what's the, wrong with my wife today? I know, Let's but you're making a straw wife. man now. If you mean the former, that, that you know, that it's just about like people saying what their problems are, it's just, it's just a small bore point concerning such a specific circumstance or kind of scene, it doesn't even rise to the dignity of calling it a rule. But if you want to set it up as a general rule... <laughs> is there dignity? <laughs> if you want to set it up is, a, there, is there a level of dignity yeah, that we need to be concerned yeah, with here? Yeah. We want to set up as a general rule. It fails pretty swiftly. Like, all I have to do is, when you say it, pretty much all of a character's actions should boil down to crass self-interest. You've claimed too much. All I have to do is enumerate examples where that's not true. You can try to, those, try to call those examples outliers. You can reinterpret them in a tortured way, such as they really are decisions made out of crass self-interest. But I could think I could pretty, pretty quickly put you on the defensive here. What, and when have you ever put me on the defensive? This is a long-standing debate between me and Matt. I think he thinks of humans as though they're like insect-like li- lizard monsters driven by a desire for dominance and self-interest. And this is this weird incel-ish 4chan-like take on <laughs> whoa, the world. Whoa, 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 whoa. But All this right. crass <laughs> self-interest, <laughs> it leaves far. out 90% of human experience. Like when you announced that rule, it was in the context of Mad Men. I've never seen Mad Men, but I've gathered it's about ruthless adults. You must see Mad Men. I know. I, okay. You must see Mad Men. I've gathered it's about ruthless adults trying to outmaneuver each other in the cutthroat world of advertising in 1950s New York, right? 1960s. 1960s New York, okay. That's a peculiar subset of humanity. A peculiar subset of stories is going to lead to a peculiar rule that leaves out a lot of other stories. For instance, today I saw my daughter in a production of Annie at her school. My daughter and my niece and nephew were in it. It was actually speaking of Albert Finney because my my nephew played uh, the Daddy Warbucks role. There you go. Uh, um, And so um, Domingo, if I remember him. So it was good. Here's the thing. When we first see Annie, we like her because she's taking care of the other orphans. She's not taking care of them because of crass self-interest. This puts us on her side. And we love Daddy Warbucks because he earnestly undertakes a nationwide search for Annie's parents 
and almost seems ready to give her up to the people who purport to be her parents, but really aren't, not out of his self-interest, but because it's the right thing to do. The reason that we like people is because they, and the reason we find them compelling is because they don't act in self-interest. Han Solo is this kind of a swashbuckling, kind of like thinks more of himself than he should pirate, but the reason we remember him is because he comes back at the end of the movie selflessly on what he himself calls a suicide mission and saves Luke from Darth Vader before blowing up the Death Star. Um, the, which, which one does Leia fall in love with? Does Leia fall in love no, with no, the no, 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 don't think, okay. like, just tell me about that movie, that moment. Which, there, okay, but I don't, I don't yeah. know if that's what he's, I don't know if he's saying, I don't know if he's saying that, because people do, I do think people do want what they want, but in doing so, you may, you become a textured person. You Your wants evolve. Self-interest is usually the motivating factor to get someone to break outside of their comfort zone to do anything. I mean, mm-hmm. that's and then, how and then, and, then the, and then the self-interest evolves. The Han Solo example is excellent. I have seen uh, workers in all sorts of workplace settings taking on things greater than themselves because their self-interest evolves into wanting to be in service to people that they have developed relationships with. Mm-hmm. They have now sort of seen is sort of by helping them, they're helping themselves. And I've sort of seen, so it's not just sort of, unless it's reinforced, that people are sort of driving towards sort of crass self-interest at all times. But an interesting character, in order for it to be believable, I think their initial sort of entree into this world must be driven by something that's sort of driven by self But what about Andy self-interest? taking Luke, care of the other workers? Let me speak, people. Let me speak. Sure. Luke okay. motivates Han around his self-interest. Right. Luke is a good union organizer. Luke is a good social justice organizer. It's true, he is. Luke he, is saying, like, okay, Han, how can I get you involved in this? First of all, I'm going to pay you. Second of all, oh, now I want you to do more than you're getting paid to do. So, oh, but she's rich. The person who we're rescuing now may pay you some more money. And so he is motivating him around his self-interest as long as he possibly can. And then finally at the end, it's like, okay, now we need you to help us raid the Death Star. And and now he has run out of self-interest. Now he can no longer motivate Han around self-interest. And he's going to say, like, okay, now we're going to, like any good union organizer, I'm going to go ahead and shove you a little further than you want to be shoved. And I'm going to go, like, okay really in the end it's not about you it's about the group and we the group needs you to the extent where you now have to betray your self-interest a little bit and han doesn't want to do it han refuses to do it and they leave and they they go their separate ways and then han is like okay i guess the needs of one little person don't matter a hill of beans in this crazy world and he is able to do it and that is a very believable arc and that is why leah falls for han and not for luke is well also i also believe it i agree james i don't know you can't suggesting the motivating factor of sort of a love interest based on sort of whether or not someone's <laughs> abiding by I, you know, I you know yeah that's I, I too mechanical really like they, they're, they're really stuck know. on the Millennium Falcon together and they're kind of making out because they're stuck in a, a cave <laughs> you know like that, 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 don't don't go down that road Matt that, that's not a productive road but like are, are you saying that like okay so Jeff are you saying that we can go from like self-interest to non-self-interest only in the third act because I think it can happen in the first act it, it, can, it can happen in any time I, I there there is this sort of I, I do think a believable story and a believable human interaction, which is a, thus a believable story because it's relatable, um, has to stem from something the audience buys. But I do think there is something that is instinctual that people kind of get, like they would believe this person's going to break outside of what their their routine mm-hmm. uh, for a specific reason, and usually that's precipitated by you are going, you're going to get something for it. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's, I'm not evaluating that are good or, as good or bad. I used to think that morality itself would be the sort of precipitating factor. And for some people it is. Most people it's not. Yeah. They need and you're to see right. something 
they need to see something. Han Solo eventually realizes by not blowing up a Death Star, he is also at risk. Yeah, so, that's how you push somebody, you know, is so, you eventually right. go like, okay, here is your immediate self-interest, yes. and here is your cosmic self-interest. Here I don't think he's coming back out of self-interest. He's not coming back to save well, Luke out of self-interest. That's, but that's, he is not. his relationship with Luke, and he cares about Luke, which is tied to his This is what I meant when I said you're going to try to find tortured ways no, to make something sound like it's in somebody's it self-interest. Obviously, if the Death Star... The Death Star is going, you know, he is someone who has opposed the Empire. The Empire is now proposed to be the most powerful it's ever been. He is someone who, it's like, well, you know, this is, you're betraying your immediate self interest for your longer term self interest. It's not a clear and present danger to his self interest. No, it is, not. it is under not. Under any he circumstances. Is, I think that his decision betraying. becomes meaningless if we say, oh no, it's even it's even more complicated self interest that he's serving now. That's the, the way whole life way, works. The whole re- life but, is all about. Com- no, 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 but I, I betray that. I, I, I deny that premise. I deny the premise. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you say that premise and I deny it. You deny that premise. Serving a broader purpose, you're saying, is not in service of some self-interest. Is the broader purpose is driven by your own conscious, like sort of like sort of pulling you towards those those choices. I don't know if like self-crafts and self-interest have to be aligned. I, I, I think, so I am in pursuit of, I pursue the career I have pursued because of how I feel. I also from a very early age determined I am not going to just have a job in my life I'm going to mm-hmm. have to do something that I feel very passionate about right. really but cool. if you if they said Jeff we expect you to work for free from this point on no I wouldn't do it no, you're right. <laughs> you wouldn't yeah, do no, it of course it's you wouldn't show up for work it's, and of course Han Solo at the end is being told to work for free I guess not maybe he's still being paid he I don't know he yeah, he gets a medal. Oh, that's yeah. that's you can trade that thing into the pawn shop. <laughs> wow! But, uh, but but you know, you're asking... do listen to yourself. You, you're self satirizing. You know that you're self satirizing. You're continuing to make like the same moribund point. I don't Making know. Moribund point. I think you are both. I, th- I agree with what both of you are, are saying. When I'm asking both of you, who I think are very smart people in terms of digging into what makes a story work or not, is to how. This how hard this can be. I think example it doesn't work would be a film like say Gladiator, where it seems as though that he's sort of participating in some broader mission against. You know, my opinion is it's against his sort of this idea that he's this decorated general and he now has to sort of you know work for a living or something. You know, it's like and now he's up against what he perceives are like sort of you know, effete elites in our, in our society mm-hmm. and he's a real man compared to like something like Spartacus where it's like the, the, the actions of that character are centered upon the main character not wanting to be a slave and also not wanting his family to be slaves and his friends to be slaves. So it's... Uh, well, um, well, let's compare... I think, I think it's... I think let's compare Spartacus to Ben-Hur. Spartacus is a movie written by communists, the movie that broke the blacklist, very much these communists finding in this slave rebellion in ancient Rome this metaphor for rising above your self-interest, where, you know, he is he is an organizer, he organizes his fellow gladiators into a labor action that is in their self-interest. You know, he at first is saying he can't figure out how to organize everyone around their self-interest, and he's like, I'm going to give up, we're all just going to keep fighting each other, like James, you talk about fighting like insects, and then Woody Strode says, I'm going to sacrifice my life in order to break the wheel, as uh, Daenerys might say, I'm going to sacrifice my life in order to take the fight away from us fighting each other and take the fight to the masters. And then his death inspires this slave uprising. And I think in many ways, Spartacus was intentionally made as a answer to Ben-Hur. They keep saying in Ben-Hur, I shouldn't be a slave because I'm a prince. Mm -hmm. I was born to be a prince. Whereas in Spartacus, 
you know, at one point they have a very specific team that I think is an answer to that where they're like, oh, Spartacus, you've led the slave rebellion. Clearly, you must have royal blood secretly in your timeline. You know, you clearly, you were not meant to be a slave. And he said, my parents, what's the line? <laughs> He's it's like, I was born a slave, my grandparents <laughs> were a slave. But I, yeah. Something along those lines. Yeah, you know? he says so something like, I'm, I'm, you know, you're wondering who my parents secretly are. Like, my parents were slaves. Their parents were slaves. Like, I have no royal blood in me. Like, you know, you actually can rise above. So then at Spartacus, we eventually get to this point where we're building to this moment where everybody says, I am Spartacus, where everybody is willing to sacrifice their life in order to protect his, but of course they're all going to be killed anyway. <laughs> they're all going to be, you know, inevitably what's going to happen is that they're all going to be uh, crucified no matter what, And but everybody is willing to at least go out saying, I am willing to be killed earlier, I'm willing to be killed first by saying that I'm Spartacus. So it's very much a sort of a movie about the blacklist, which it ironically helped break. It's a movie about union organizing. So were they working in their self-interest there? Yes. yes. So, well, they're working in their self-interest. It's really... Well, it's they got killed? They're, yeah, they get them all killed. <laughs> um, so when they say, I'm Spartacus, they're working against their self-interest to a certain extent. No, you know, they're no, saying... No. I don't think so. How so? No, they're saying they are Spartacus. They're, they're actually sort of exercising a degree of... They understand, like you said, that they're all likely to die. But at that point, sort of, the, it, you know, if there's any chance they're going to survive, it's by sticking together. You reach a point like that where... Your, your natural inclination to connect it to self-interest, I think is tied, James, to what you're saying. It becomes tied to a broader purpose because you're so used to doing it. You're so used to sort of interacting with people in a different way than you perhaps are conditioned to. Otherwise. And also just like, your cussedness of like, I'm going to stick with it. Yeah. No, Which right. is not a self-interest thing. It's like, I'm sticking with it. I don't care what happens. I'm sticking with this team. They, there's a certain perversity in human nature that goes against like bare self-interest just like this is my team and I'm sticking with them no well, matter what even if I get killed there's self-interest and there's selfishness and I don't I think those are two different this is things. when we get to that when I people start we're going to start defining self-interest in a tortured way <laughs> such <laughs> that I don't know we, I, don't I, know. I think I Jeff has think a so. good I, point here there's I, a difference I, between I think this is yeah. I think we've reached yeah. a a a key point here which is there's a difference between selfishness and self-interest I mean obviously any given member of Spartacus's army could say hey I am willing to betray the whole army if you will save my life and go ahead and re-enslave me to some nice household in downtown Rome. They might get away with that, and they're saying they're not going to do that. You know, certainly Tony Curtis, I guess, is already used to being a house slave in, in downtown Rome. So there is, to a certain extent, they are betraying their self-interest, but ultimately, yeah, as Jeff says, I think as you're both saying, you know, that even cussedness, as you're saying, James, is to a certain extent, self-motivated. Okay, we're light years away from rule number 42, people only want what they want. Talking about just everything in terms of self-interest, or like it's a limited moral imagination. People do things for all kinds of reasons, because they feel they ought to, even though they get nothing out of it, because they want to live up to someone else's expectations, or even if they don't want to live up to that person's expectations, or, or people act perversely, like in a Dostoevsky novel, they intentionally do self-sabotaging things, with their eyes wide open, walking into, the, into their own death, these are some of the most interesting moments with characters, and you're leaving them on the table by talking about everything in terms of its self-interest. And I think if we can all take all these very amazing moments in literature and movies and try to like recalculate them so that actually this really inspiring moment was really, in the long run, after you do all the math about self-interest, but th th that's not going, that's, that, that's not viscerally true, and it's not going to help a storyteller when they're sitting there on the page with a blinking cursor or with their pen on the paper. I think that thinking of character in terms of, thinking of heroism in terms of pursuing self-interest and then 
very painfully rising above self-interest. I'm not saying that no one ever rises above self-interest. I'm not saying heroes never rise above self-interest. I'm saying that what makes for a great story is capturing the realistic pain of rising above self-interest, the realistic reluctancy to rise above self-interest, and how much Jeff's job is, right now Jeff is calling up all these writers and trying to get them to fire their agents, and it's like, well, your agent is fighting for you in the short run, but they're hurting you in the long run. And that is an extremely difficult conversation to have. You know, trying to convince somebody that your short-term self-interest is different from your long-term self-interest. Jeff isn't calling people up and going like, well, I want you to think about the way capitalism works and the way that ultimately in the praxis of the larger diegetic narrative, you know, he is calling people up and he's going like, look, you're, you're, you know, you're going to be screwed in the long run. If you keep doing this, you're going to be screwed in the long run, even though right now this guy, you know, you may have an agent who you love who's fighting for you in the short term. Ultimately, the way the agencies are changing, we've got to stand up to them and stop them at some point. Now is the time. Now is the time to stand up to them and stop them, even if it means that you might not get a job in this next casting season. I'm sticking up for the writer who's sitting at the page right now. And that person right now, if they want to write Charlotte from Charlotte's Web, what's your self-interest? Hagrid, what's his self-interest? Uh, the boy Sam in the Trumpet of the Swan, what's his self-interest? These, these things are not easily calculable in terms of self-interest. You, you can you can find some roundabout way to say that Charlotte does what she does out of self-interest. Oh, she's trying to find some sucker to take care of her <laughs> eggs, you know, in, cha in the last chapter. But in fact, you will never write the character Charlotte going by your shitty advice in this case. It, 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 she's not moving out of self-interest. She's not. Yeah, no, Charlotte is, Charlotte is, you know, first of all, not the main character. Charlotte is... No, no, okay, you said all characters. I tried, I, I nailed you early on that. <laughs> she, Charlotte is a Christ-like figure. Charlotte is a sacrificing figure. Charlotte is someone who cannot survive she's more the than end a sacrificing. of the novel. She, she's more than a sacrifice. Okay, Mary Poppins. She doesn't survive. I mean, she survives. They, she is uh, somebody who, like, does not do things out of self-interest. Well, Do you I want no people like, write another Mary I Poppins? I just, if you're looking at self-interest as someone who, you know, is doing things to get ahead based on some sort of short-term economic gain or being seen as sort of gaining some sort of status and in the eyes of strangers, sure. That's, that's, and that's how people are going to take this advice. When they see rule number 42, people only want what they want, that's how they're going to take people, it when they're people, writing. But people want what they want. That doesn't mean they want bad things. It just means it's just the heart wants what the heart wants. Look at it that way, mm -hmm. right? So Yeah, I, I mean, Mary Poppins' true. heart... So heart is. Yeah, that's a very good way so of putting good, it. So. Like, Mary Poppins' heart wants what her heart wants. She goes about her job in her way. She does not care how other people want her to do her job she does not you know she is not someone who is like i'm here to help you mr banks achieve whatever you want to achieve no. she's also not someone who says to the children i'm here to help you achieve whatever you want just to as achieve. i predicted you're redefining self-interest in no, a roundabout I, no, you are, way. No, Mary you. Poppins is, is in many ways putting that family at risk by imposing what she believes and i share the mary of course mary poppins idea of what a better family should be not focused on money not focused on mm -hmm. status not focused on i mean obviously but she just because i can speak for experience on that just because you believe that doesn't necessarily sort of like give you some sort of you are not endowed with some sort of like you know moral sort of compass to sort of guide other people whether they want to or not in that direction whether it comes to some sacrifice to them so it's like she mary Poppins is acting according to a morality that she believes will help this family. It 
This family may very well, and we don't know what's going to happen until the very end of this family. This family will, will, very well may wind up destitute as a result of mm-hmm. you know these decisions that Mary Poppins is imposing in their lives, which is driven by a belief that she has, which is driven by her what her heart wants, what she wants. Mary Poppins you know, is so. not a selfless character. Mary so, Poppins is not yeah. someone saying, how can I help you get what you want? How can I help you do what you want to do? Mary Poppins is someone who has her own beliefs, her own moral system, yeah. her own values, her own way of working. She comes in and she says, we're going to do things my way. I am going to create a vision of this family that I have that you guys do not have that does not match your vision of what this family How should does it be. Help her self-interest. That's her self-interest. That's her self-interest. <laughs> that, That's I think you're wants. again you're defining things in a tortured way. I think if somebody was sitting down to write a Mary Poppins down, they never heard of Mary Poppins before, and they saw your rule number forty-two. People only want what they want. They'd try to reconceive of Mary Poppins in such a way that you would get something out of reforming this family. They'd write Mrs. Doubtfire. That's this is this is all about believable. This is all about believable mm-hmm. actions people take. Yeah, not so much. It like, has to be believable. Right wrong, and I know. believe in Mary Poppins. I believe in yes, Mary Poppins. But I also think that Mary Poppins is like Charlotte. Too good to live. Charlotte or Mary Poppins or these other characters, you know, they are. There's a book called Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> There's a movie. There's, There's a movie called Mary Poppins yeah. Returns. Um, that that these are, you know, these are characters who give, like the Giving Tree. These are characters who give until they give out to a certain extent. No, I I, I think you're 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 if. To make a point, you're flattening a lot of differences. <laughs> James, uh, of difference. I don't Jim know if me... you're familiar with the concept of rhetoric. But in the concept of rhetoric, yeah. two people have a debate. And in order to have the debate, they define their terms. And you are like, well, okay, first rule of our debate, man, is that you are not allowed to define your terms. Okay, so go. All right, so I'm going to define your terms. And by the way, you are not allowed to define your terms because I've already defined your terms for you. You're a bunch okay. of like, disparate things and saying they're the same thing. And you, then you call that defining your terms. Yes, uh, that's what defining terms is. What do you think defining terms is? Well, I think that when you're dealing with fiction or you're dealing with oh, art, you're dealing with a, you're not dealing with mathematics. You're dealing with a more yes. woolly and weird area in which you yes. can't lay yes. down that's these kind of saying. geometrical rules. No, and you are taking the, you know whether it's Charlotte, whether it's Mary Poppins, it's all the same shit. You're saying I'm saying <laughs> uh, no, it's not. <laughs> I don't know for. I don't know if he's. I'm not hearing him saying that. I, you were certainly not saying that, and I agree with you. All I have to do is show one example. In fact, I've given like 15 throughout this podcast of people doing things that are against their self-interest or are beyond their immediate self-interest, and I only have to give one of them to destroy your point. And I've given like 15 of them. And it, 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 that's not how really debate. Works, okay, here's the thing. James. You want to think in terms of one exa- Okay, you, know, you want to think in terms of self-interest, but hate, shame. Fear, self-destructiveness, irrationality, and willful self-destruction should be taken seriously, as well as incalculable generosity, selflessness, like humanity. Like your idea is that characters are like That's rational egoists, but that no. is not how humans or interesting characters are actually like. No, I'm not talking about egoism. That is your definition of this. Because all the points you raised, someone can still want what they want and still engage in all the all the emotions that you describe, which are human and people exhibit every single day. You can still. You're, 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 there's some drive. I don't think a writer crazy. is going to get there. It drives me crazy. So, I'm an audience. I'm not a writer. I am an audience. I'm a fellow fan, and mm-hmm. it, it drives me crazy in, in films and in literature when characters make decisions that don't make any sense. They don't make sense based on things that you've seen them do, mm-hmm. values that they seem to hold. You know anything that would make rational sense that drives me crazy, and it's it's usually in like a lazy way to sort of advance the narrative or sort of take that character in some other direction or sort of 
um, drive the the story in some in some direction. So that and then and to me that ruins the story, and I think it's in violation of what you keep saying, Rule Forty Two. If the character is making a decision that seems to go against what they want, or that's sort of that's sort of moving them in some direction, not necessarily sort of in some selfish direction, but is making logical sense, which yeah. is driven with sort of consistency of sort of who they are. If a character is sort of exhibiting, if you're if you're if you're seeing a story play out, or you're reading a story, and it, it plays, and a character is sort of makes that choice because they're making there are lots of. You know, literature and film is full of, of interesting characters that make bad choices, but they they make bad choices in a way that's consistent with who that character is, and it could be. But I think there's also making bad choices could also be what someone wants to do, or it could be because they're in search of something else. They're in search of some validation for making that bad choice. They're in search of attention. They're in search of whatever. It's like it's not so much like if you're hearing what I'm saying, like people only make what they want what they want because it's to their benefit. It's that's not how I see it. I, mm-hmm. I, I just sort of sort of see consistency and choice. Oftentimes I want people to make a different decision, but if I'm as a fan or I'm viewing something or reading something that where a character makes something that at least is while it may be frustrating, at least it sort of feels real. It feels it feels sort of um, like it would be something that this character, as I've grown to know this character, would make, then it, then I'll follow. If, if something that's just sort of outside of anything you could conceive this character would want, whether it's just where it's aff- affirmative or destructive, then the, the, that, that story tends to lose me. Here's um, what I'm afraid so. of. we got a 25-year-old J.K. Rowling right now. She's writing a Hagrid-like character, and she's like, why is... He's being so nice to this hairy kid. You know what? He's got to want something out of him. He's, oh, I get it. He's currying favor with this hairy kid so Harry could help him out later in book two to get him out of Azkaban. You know, and that would make Hagrid an awful character. But it, but here's the thing. It would be, it would be like, oh, yeah, that all makes sense. He's, you know, he knows that Harry's some kind of chosen one. And, you know, he, he could, everybody looks after their self-interest. And But th- that's not what Hagrid is about. Hagrid kind of overflows this kind of dumb I'm- love um, and, uh, here. I would say that Hagrid is your best example of all the ones you've raised today. I say that Hagrid is a believable, compelling character who is not too good to live. He is a real, human, believable character, and he is almost entirely selfish. I mean, I think everybody wants Harry Potter to like them because Harry Potter is a superstar. Is no, a it starts. It starts now. You're <laughs> starting to j- j- torture justification of Hagrid. That is like some kind but, of like like criminology, you know, way of thinking about him. That like, I think Hagrid really like Hagrid really loves what he does. Hagrid is someone that really enjoys the sort of interacting with sort of children who are students who are going through Hogwarts. I, I think and, that's I think that's very. There are lots of people like that in this world, and I think Hagrid is a very believable person yeah. if you were to do that. But Hagrid, Hagrid does Hagrid. frequently ask Harry for favors, first uh-huh. of all. He does frequently ask Harry for favors. Harry has to... In a guileless way. He is not <laughs> like, is looking for self-interest. And I think, here's the thing, all throughout this, we're saying all these kind of more sophisticated, second, third, fourth, seventh level things, but when you are a beginning writer, who is, uh, I think a lot of people who are listening to you, and are looking for guidance, they're not looking for guidance for like how human nature works or how to organize a union. They're wondering how to make a story work, and they see rule number 42, people only want what they want, and are like, well, I better make sure everybody's getting their own self-interest out of this scene, and they will be misled, and they will not write a Hagrid. They will not write a Charlotte. They will not write a Harry, uh, a, a Mary Poppins. They won't write a Raskolnikov, you, you know, who works okay. against his self-interest. I, I think, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, yeah. All right, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's get to Raskolnikov here. How is Raskolnikov the hero, uh, anti-hero of... 
Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. How is he not working in his self-interest? He is uh, deluded by all these like like distorted and jumbled versions of like Darwinism or French thought or English utilitarianism, and he, he there's this weird intellectual climate that Dostoevsky himself was in. Dostoevsky was somebody who had a lot of problems with self-destructive impulses like gambling or procrastination, all, all yeah. kinds of things like that. It doesn't get Raskolnikov ahead in life at all to kill the pawnbroker. He just does it to make some kind of point to himself. Now, you could you can make some tortured point that it's like some kind of self-interest, but it's not in his self-interest to kill the pawnbroker. Yes, it's supremely is, selfish. Killing the pawnbroker is a supremely selfish act. How is that not a selfish act? I, I would agree. Because he doesn't do he doesn't he, he does it very specifically not to get himself out of hock. Yeah, he, he owes does her it. money. I don't know, but that is not no, then you totally misunderstand Dostoevsky. He he you gotta read it again. Money. If you think that's the point of Dostoevsky, you gotta reread it. Raskolnikov kills her because he owes her money. No, he that's kills not, her because he owes her money. That's obviously a motivating factor. I don't agree either. He dresses it up in all of these philosophical ideas because he is you know, fancy Okay, that is a take, but I don't think that that's not my take. Okay, so to sum up here, James, I feel like you're saying, like, you made this rule. You wrote three paragraphs on your blog back in 2010 about writing about one particular Wait, scene on one own. particular TV show. This is also in your book. This is in your book book. Is this in my book book? Does yeah, the... you say people only want what they yes, want in your book book. In your that, book. Okay, that's in my but book book. It's so cowardly <laughs> to run away from your own words. Like, either stand behind your shit or don't. I did not call it Rule 42 in my book book, but uh, I do not use the word rules in my book book. But I do think that it is helpful for writers to remind themselves constantly to make sure that their characters have a sense of self, to make sure that their characters have a sense of like, here's who I am, here's what I want, here's what I believe, here's what I'm going to do, rather than, you know, what do you want? What are you going to, you know, what do you want to do? How can I help you? That was what the original post was about, is don't have your characters walk in the room and say, how can I help you? And I still totally stand by that post. I still totally stand by that belief. Why the characters you... should not walk in the room and say, how can I help you? Now you, but can you say, cringe every time I say I people like, only want what they want. I feel like the best example you've given is... Hagrid, but he is someone who wants what he wants. Hagrid wants what he wants, and what he wants is almost entirely good and helpful to Harry, but he is not someone who walks in the room with Harry. When Harry goes and visits Hagrid, Hagrid never says, oh, it's Harry Potter, the boy I love. What can I do for you, Harry? He never says that. Yeah, he Hagrid says, what's, he always... says what's wrong, Harry, all the time. He says, "What's wrong, Harry?" All we're gonna time. do, we're gonna do a search. <laughs> search oh my God! Like, Harry, I'm sure, is many times coming to Hagrid's hut and, and sat with like some like, one of his rock cakes or whatever. And Hagrid said, "Oh, Harry, what's bothering you?" And Harry's like, well, "I can't talk about it." And then like, Harry doesn't say the one piece of plot that could have like closed the whole book down <laughs> 300 pages early <laughs> like come on matt you know this as well as i, I do we are gonna do a we're gonna do an exhaustive okay, search I, of how ex exactly how often haggard says that in the book but i feel like you know my original point stands my original rule 42 on my blog which i published back in 2010 still stands people only want they want haggard only wants what he wants he is just a very good person who generally wants what's good for harry and you know, really loves Harry and is really interested in Harry. He's much more than a normal character. Is someone who says, "Oh, Harry, what's going on in your life? What's going on? I love you. Tell me about your life." But he is someone who only wants what he wants. He's someone whose wants and needs very frequently make life difficult for Harry. He is someone who is pursuing selfish goals in a way that put Harry's life in danger. Selfish. 
That yes, word. Selfish. Good luck writing a selfish. Hagrid with the word selfish in oh your mind. Oh my god, Hagrid is so selfish. Hagrid, you know, completely betrays the secret of the Philosopher's Stone, or Sorcerer's Stone, as you dumb. Americans might say. He's because dumb. he is pursuing his self-interest. Du- his uh, self-interest uh, um. is to get a dragon egg. That is his self-interest. You and make it in sound the like he is a scheming character. He is not scheming. He is guileless. But you can be guileless and pursue your self-interest. And Hagrid is a great example Good luck of that. writing Hagrid with rule number 42 in your mind. Good yes, luck. Yes, you can do it. You can do it, Good America. Luck. You can write Hagrid with rule 42 in your mind. Okay, Jeff, have we satisfied your your goals for today? Yes, each of you have made excellent points. I... I do think, James, you're focused. I think there is like self-interest and there's devious self-interest. And I think devious self-interest seems to be something that is, you keep sort of like equating with self-interest. And I'm not sure you, as an, as an organizer, I would never, you would never want to organize someone around devious self-interest because you can't hold someone. Devious self-interest is ephemeral. It's, it's something that is service to one thing and will get you, will not align you with anyone else will not gain you more followers will probably alienate people because the, when you're in service of of, of, of deviant self-interest you're usually causing harm deviant so not so, devious but now deviant, deviant. <laughs> you, you've <laughs> gone up a level exactly yes i yes I'm, we're graduating here but um when characters are sort of abiding by logical steps which i do think sort of fault that the, the rule for rule 42 you want what you want or the heart wants what the heart wants then i think you just wind up sort of falling more into the story and you and you, you the story becomes more sustainable. I think I think where I think what you just said is good because you're sort of rewriting rule 42 and the way you rewrite rule 42 to not convince some writer to cut Hagrid out of their book is the rule should not have been people only want they want the rule should have been the heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah, okay, so I, I will I are will we all prepared yeah, to come I, around yeah, to that. I'll, that's I'll what admit rule 42, rule 42 in a way the meaning of life. The meaning of uh, life, uh, um, the, uh, um, in the, fact. The, the, uh, I'll, I'll admit Rule 42 with a codicil of this whole conversation. But um, the, <laughs> yeah. the, so, the, so. I, I have to take into account the perversity and the incalculability of human nature. Yes. And the, and the cussedness and the weirdness yeah. of it. Okay, so I think that we've all agreed that I should have rewritten that post to instead being people only want what they want to the heart wants what the heart wants because that allows for characters like Hagrid. I think that we have... I think we have done this, guys. I think we have gotten a really good discussion out of this. Okay, so usually in the past when we've had a special guest, uh, it's always been Jonathan Oxier, and we, he is always on Pittsburgh time and has to get off the phone in time for us to do a free story idea. Uh, this time, we're going to go ahead and keep Jeff around for free story ideas. Okay, so in the past, we've maybe gone too long with these free story ideas. It was originally supposed to be like a five-minute camper to the end of the episode, but James promises me that this week he has brought a quick idea, and we're going to give him some quick feedback. But let's go ahead. Let's do it, James. Hit it and quit it, James. As I said earlier today, I went to see my daughter in Annie. Yes. And I I brought my younger daughter, um, Ingrid, with me, and we were walking, and I took her out of school, and we were walking back to her school after I was like, and we're talking about like Annie, how you know what we could do with it, how it could be better, and we got with this idea of Andy. Uh-huh. So it's kind of like Elf, a forty-six-year-old man in an orphanage. Okay, <laughs> but like all elf. the other orphans are like twelve, uh-huh. and they're all boys. 
And but he like just is you know un- unself conscious. So he's never been adopted. <laughs> Nobody wants him. But he's still in the orphanage. He's forty six. So I don't know if Will Smith could still play this. Maybe it would be like a God no. Like maybe it would be like I think it's like Andy. Who's the Lonely Island guy? Andy Samberg. Andy Samberg. Uh, okay. A little more smartass. Yeah. Uh, but like still could be like oblivious to the world. And so then he gets adopted not by you know a, a old millionaire but like a young Instagram influencer girl. <laughs> uh, all right, and so it'd be like a JoJo Sewa. I don't know if you know who she is. I don't. But, oh, but she, yeah, she, come on, JoJo Sewa. She's like what, are we're you, tight. Do you know who? No, okay, I have no idea who JoJo Sewa okay. is. Okay, will soon. I'm yeah, yeah. Know whoever that is. Yeah, yeah. So the, she, she's the, a big deal. Uh, the, like, the my, my daughters don't really like her, but their friends like her, and they've told me about her. And so the character of Grace, the assistant to Daddy Warbucks, will be played by some like middle-aged man who's kind of like a hard-ass, like J.K. Simmons. She decides to adopt an orphan for the lulls. <laughs> you know, but she adopts this. And what's more lulls than Andy Samberg? And she adopts him. And so basically, we just do the plot of Annie, but we gender swap it, swap it, and we uh, age swap uh, and it. we age swap it. What do you think? I think that's a that could be a funny Andy Samberg movie. So where does this go? Who who's gonna learn and grow? Or does he learn and grow? Does she learn and grow? What happens? Well, you know what? Here's the crazy thing about Annie: nobody learns and grows. Uh, um, you, you know, like um, there's a, a minor inconvenience. Grows. There's a minor inconvenience for everybody, and then everybody kind of is happy. We just need to. We need an ending. Well, we need a funny ending. So let's 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 give up on something meaningful. Well, what, what happens, would be the funniest possible ending to this movie? I feel like a socialist rebellion of all of the uh, orphans could be awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, like they, they just kind of like take over the city and and declare a dictatorship of the proletariat, like in New York, and then suddenly it works out. And yeah. that's supported by the influencer. It's supported by the influencer. Yes, the influencer so becomes she, radicalized. She, she tweets out sort of like <laughs> yes. Of so she has or take to the streets and yeah, from Omaha to to, yes. to to Nevada City to Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine. These all these children who love the, this influencer, they're radicalized and they're controlling the means of production. So all right, so I That's think I think this the is the key to the movie. I think we've got the key to the movie is that influencer decides to make the world's most frivolous decision of adopting a thirty five year old orphan and then he radicalizes her and makes her realize what influence really is what the power of influence is what the power of the modern media is and that they wind up leading some sort of revolution to help all the orphans of the world or something like that yeah and so who is the villain who's getting in their way so who, like should we have like one unitary the mayor of new york well, like, um, I think Simmons could be the villain because he is oh. profiting from you know the influencers, you know, sort of advertisers and all the all the sponsors can, who are going to pull you know you know pull up stakes. After he can this be the made, so. he can be the Ned Beatty character from Network, yeah. who it's like you know like you were you know allowing you to have a platform yeah. was helpful to us, the powers that be, and now that you are using your platform in a more you know, populist way, then we're going to bring down the force of God upon you. And you are meddling. You are meddling. Here's what's going to blow my mind. We're going to cut in that clip right here. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. (laughs) And and that, you know, she finds out just how much influence an influencer actually has. Okay, guys. I think this is, it's a good idea. I think we've made it better. So, James, the big thing is here, are you ready to give this idea away? You just had this idea today. Yeah. Should it live? Let it live, James. Don't you want to write it, or are you really going to give it you away? You want to write it with me? No, I'm not going to write it with you. Why not? Uh, because it's it's your baby, James. I can't deliver your baby for you. Matt viscerally dislikes me. Yeah. I think that's, 
you know, we've never, have we ever actually mentioned that on the podcast before? I think we've never mentioned that. We should go ahead and get that out of the way that I viscerally dislike James. So, and uh, scene. <laughs> and scene. Okay, guys. <laughs> I think we've had a good podcast. I think we've had a good special guest. I think we've had a good discussion. I think we've had a good free story idea. Jeff Fetz is going to go back to New York where he's going to keep fighting the good fight. We are going to stay here in Chicago where we are going to keep fighting the awful fight that we fight every week for your good on this podcast. Jeff, any any final words? Uh, no, I've enjoyed being here. I really love the podcast. So keep it up. I'd, uh, more episodes would be good. Yes, we've yes. produced 11 episodes in two years. So we're going to start doing more often. You'll be hearing from us again soon. And thanks so much for coming out. Goodbye, guys. Coming out? Thanks so much for coming out to join us. Thanks so much for coming. Where do they come out to? us halfway. They, they're just listening <laughs> to us while they're washing their dishes. <laughs> Have you ever listened to a podcast to make me sick? <laughs> it's my understanding that people are listening to this in some sort of amphitheater or something. Yes. Is that not the case? Yes, they, they've centered into the Roman Forum. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Head and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.